Well, this morning uh, we're going to be back in Genesis, picking up with Joseph again after last week's uh, little detour with Judah. And thankfully we survived that message, or at least I did, I think. Uh, but we're in Genesis chapter 39 this morning. And as my wife asked me what the title of the message was for last week's message after we got home, I didn't say it. Uh, the title of this morning's message is The Lord Was With Joseph. And again, I'm not that clever. It's just, it's a phrase that kept popping up in the chapter, as you'll see, and I thought it made the most sense. But previously with Joseph, we saw that he had two dreams. Uh, what the kids are coloring or were coloring was one of sheaves of wheat, where he and his brothers were out in the field and uh, they were gathering wheat uh, at the harvest. And his brothers, uh, basically like hay bales, bowed down to his. And as you can assume, his brothers, they don't like that very much. And then Joseph had another dream about the sun, the moon, and the stars all bowing down uh, to him. And uh, this even upset his dad, uh, Jacob, uh, even though he kept it close to his heart, the Bible says. I mean, remember that there were things that happened with Mary and with Jesus that she kept close to her heart as well. Uh, but he did rebuke him for that. He's like, are you kidding me? Even You think your mom and I are going to bow down to you? You're not the oldest son, even. You're one of the youngest. But his dad did favor him. His dad loved him. He was, if you remember, he was... Uh, Rachel's son, and uh, she had died uh, giving birth to uh, Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. Uh, Jacob really favored Joseph and gave him this special coat that showed that he was, in a sense, above his brothers. And it didn't help that he would send him out to go look for his brothers in the field and kind of give his dad a report of what they were doing, uh, right or wrong. His dad didn't really trust the other brothers. And the other brothers, as we've seen, have, weren't really the most trustworthy. They, you know, they wanted to kill their brother. When he did come out to them, they saw him coming over the way, and they said, let's kill him. You know, it's, uh, it wasn't just like, you know, you have a little brother and you want to beat him up. They really wanted to kill him. And, and thankfully, Reuben was watching out for him and convinced them to throw him in a pit. And Reuben's intent was to bring Joseph back to his dad, uh, but they could sell him. They sold him before uh, he could do that uh, to, of all people, uh, Ishmaelite traders. Think about Abraham and Ishmael. Just a couple hundred years later, we see these people coming through and they're uh, selling him to him. Uh, but last week, again, we saw Judah left to go make uh, himself his own man. And today we're going to pick it up with uh, Joseph in Egypt. But as we continue to look at Joseph's life, his trials, obviously he was forgotten <laughs> You know, his brothers forgot to love him as a brother. He's forgotten in prison, as we'll see. Um, you know, he already has these dreams that I don't even know if he knows how to interpret yet at this point. Um, but he does that, and he goes to run the day-to-day affairs of Egypt that we need to keep in mind that he didn't know these things from the beginning. We obviously have the advantage of seeing these things from the end. But as we look through, obviously, Scripture, hopefully with the, the lens of the Holy Spirit, and we see that God is with him through all these things. And I read a couple of devotionals this week that I thought tied in kind of well with not necessarily today's study, but I think the study of Joseph as a whole. And I'm going to read you uh, excerpts from two of these from My Utmost Verse Highest. The first one is from August 10th. It says, Choosing to suffer means that there must be something wrong with you. But choosing God's will, even if it means you will suffer, is something very different. No normal, healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He simply chooses God's will, just as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. And no saint should ever dare to interfere with the lesson of suffering being taught in another saint's life. And it goes on later to say, Look at God's incredible waste 
of his saints, according to the world's judgment. God seems to plant his saints in the most useless places. And then we say, God intends for me to be here because I am so useful to him. Yet Jesus never measured his life by how or where he was of the greatest use. God places his saints where they will bring the most glory to him, and we are totally incapable of judging where that may be. I think if you and I were Joseph, and we were just being sold by our brothers who a few hours ago wanted to murder me, murder you and I, and now we're in this caravan of Ishmaelites of our distant relatives, we might think, why does God have me here? What use can I be to God here? And he goes on, this is one from the previous day. Uh, common sense is a gift that God gave to our human nature. But common sense is not the gift of his son. Supernatural sense is the gift of his son, and we should never put our common sense on the throne. The son always recognizes and identifies with the father, but common sense has never yet done so and never will. Our ordinary abilities will never worship God unless they are transformed by the indwelling Son of God. We must make sure that our human flesh is kept in perfect submission to Him, allowing Him to work through it moment by moment. Are we living at such a level of human dependence upon Jesus Christ that His life is being exhibited moment by moment in us? And we'll see even today that Joseph has talents. Joseph has abilities. Joseph has probably a lot of common sense and that's why he's good at what he's doing but more than that joseph has the favor of god on him and it says that some you know we can't put our common sense on a throne and for joseph i think to put his common sense on the throne would be what use have i have here how can i serve god when i'm a slave when i'm not even in god's land and i'll probably never get back to god's land common sense would say joseph your life's over buddy And what sort of trials have you and I experienced in our lives? Or maybe even we're going through right now. Do we feel like God is in it? I think that's a problem. Is, is always trying to feel if God is in it. He is in it. If you and I are a believer and we're going through something, well, we can rest assured that God is in it with us. In fact, that God has gone before us and behind us. And as I think I asked previously, earlier Joseph, it said, what sort of dreams, goals, or visions has God given you? And does it seem like they will ever come true? I can remember years ago, working at a place, about an hour and a half commute each way, seemed to be a dead end. It was a good job, but it was far away. It wasn't glamorous. And I had, my heart was elsewhere. And I thought, man, I'm never going to get out of this. How am I ever going to get out of this? I just, I just remember the feeling that summer day, driving back from lunch at work or whatever, and just going, man, I'm in this place. <laughs> am I ever going to get out of this position? And here I am. I had no idea. Even months after that, things that God was doing. You know, I uh, went shooting the other day, and there was a place that um, I wanted to go. Like I said, I wanted to go since we first moved out here, but I found another place that was a little uh, easier to find. Um, and so I figured I'd go try it. You know, I got a couple hours, so the sun goes down. I got nothing to do. I kind of want to get out and do something, so uh, let me go try. And uh, I looked on Google Maps and found this spot off this uh, forestry, forest road, and it's kind of hard to tell what the terrain was like, but it looked like it might be conducive to 
parking and getting out and you know finding a good spot to shoot. As I'm going down, going up the trail, it's beautiful, past some cows. The trail is like one lane. I'm like, oh, Lord, please don't let anyone come the other way because I don't want to back up this road um, and go off the cliff and roll down the hill. I unbuckle my seatbelt. I'm like, if I have to bail, <laughs> I'm going to bail. Um, not like I, I'd probably get out and the truck would run me over anyway. So I was like, let me just make sure I can stay on the road. <laughs> this works about a, the bailing out. I mean, how many times in life do we have plans like that? Like, let me figure out how I can bail. And it's better just to put your effort into staying on the road. But the GPS said I was there. I was like, this can't be it. Or if this is it, I Google Maps does not show terrain very well because it was super steep. There was just a little tiny area to kind of turn around. And uh, I was like, well, I don't really have an area to turn around. I might as well keep going. So I kept going. I got a little narrower, got a little sketchier. And then it opened up. And after another turn, it turned into the place I'd wanted to go in the first place. And I think towards the end of the day, the Lord sort of mentioned me that, like, you know, like, you're almost there. Like, just go a little bit further. doesn't look like you're there now. You feel like maybe this was all a big mistake. And, you know, you, you thought you knew where you were going on the map, and it didn't pan out that way, but just go a little bit further. And, Lord, this morning, we don't want common sense to rule our lives. God, was, we even had, spoke about it a couple weeks ago in a message about how we do need to be practically good at things lord that truly we can only be the best practicality comes through your spirit and god we pray that you'd help us to be spiritually practical that we'd be concerned about doing the right thing spiritually even if practically it looks insane god because we know that if you're in it and you're leading us and guiding us it's going to prosper and not necessarily for our wallets but god for your kingdom and for our spiritual well-being and for those around us god so fill us we pray forgive us where we've fallen short, and uh, as God who is sufficient for these things. And God, would you come and minister to all of us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 39, and we'll read the first six verses. It says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, uh, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And I really wish that part was in the next verse because it would make for an easier transition, but we're going to stop there. It says that Joseph was taken down to Egypt. And the little research I did showed that Joseph was probably around 17 years old. They estimate that when he was taken down there. Do you remember what you were doing when you were 17? I remember what I was doing when I was 16 and being in class and goofing off. And I remember this, I just had this vivid memory of being 16 in history class. Of, this is, it's interesting. But remember how I, old you thought you were or maybe how old I thought I was and how mature. And yet the things I was doing were about as immature as you can get. But this word taken down can mean brought down. Obviously, he was brought down there. He didn't go of his own accord. He was sold into slavery down there. 
but it means to sink or even prostrated, like laying down flat on the ground, or to let down, like by a rope, or to bring down. I think it's interesting that as he was exalted out of his brothers by his father, that he was favored, as he had been favored by God with dreams and what was to come, that God was letting Joseph down into Egypt. That Joseph maybe even felt, I'm not going to speak for him, but maybe even felt like God was letting him down. God, you gave me these promises, and this looks nothing like it. In fact, this looks like the complete opposite. Why are you letting me down, God? I don't know that Joseph said that. I feel like I've definitely said that before. But God was letting him down for a reason. For a reason. In fact, I think that God maybe even allowed Joseph to have those dreams in the beginning, not only to bring glory to him, obviously, and show that this was God's doing to everyone else, that it wasn't just Joseph became a successful businessman or whatever. But I think in some way, personally, as again, we're looking at the relationship of God and man in Genesis, that God and Joseph have a relationship here, that God wanted Joseph to have something to hang on to while he led him down in those trials. That without those dreams, perhaps, the trials would have been too much for Joseph and overwhelmed him. That without that glimmer of hope to hang on to, maybe he wouldn't have made it. I thought of, I wasn't going to quote it originally, but I thought of the movie Castaway when Tom Hanks is stuck on that island when the, the, the plane crashes. Um, and all he's got is a little picture of, I guess it was his fiance. They were going to get married soon and then what's happened. And so he'd have that and flip that open and look at that. This little glimmer of hope, like I want to get back to the person I love. I feel like in some way, perhaps that's what those dreams and visions were to Joseph during this season. Like, I know God gave these to me. And if God gave them to me, well, he's going to make them come true, but I don't know how. We talk about the desires of our heart in the scripture. And God says that if you seek him and follow him, that he will give you desires of your heart. That these things that he's birthed in you or begun to birth in you, well, maybe we can't bring him to pass in our own flesh. But like Jesus says that, you know, it's impossible with man is possible with God. And to Joseph, any dream coming true at this point for a slave uh, in a foreign country with no one to save him, any dream coming true is impossible in, uh, you know, in practical ways at this point. But again, can you imagine that? Can you imagine this? Your brothers sell you. A couple days ago, your dad was giving you this awesome coat saying, I love you, son. I've put you over all these things. And now all of a sudden, your brothers want to kill you, you're in slavery. It's like, just a couple of days ago, I got a raise, and now I'm on the unemployment line? How does that work? It was seemingly in stark contrast to how Joseph would be lifted up in Egypt. He was put down that he might be lifted up. And again, like I mentioned earlier, we had the benefit of seeing it from the end, but he was still living it. And I hope that we can grasp onto that, that, he, that he, to what he's living and going through this and I know that's why the scripture at least in some small part is there for us but apparently it would be 11 more years until the next chapter chapter 40 when he interprets the dream of the the baker and the, the candlestick maker but the, the baker and the uh, and the, the wine guy the taster uh, be, and then it would still be a further two more years until he interprets Pharaoh's dream he's lifted out of captivity that he's 17 now not until he's 30 until he's out of this trial and what did he do wrong Nothing. He came to see his brothers. He was obeying his father to go see what was going on. He reminded of that parable 
about the, the vine dresser goes away and sends his servants, and he says, ah, oh, finally, they'll listen to my son, but they say, ah, oh, the heir is coming, and they take him and seize him. But he sold to this man Potiphar, uh, and his name means belonging to the son, and it's interesting that I think Joseph belongs to the son, S-O-N, and this man belongs to the son. You know, Egypt, they worshipped Ra, the sun god, and so this man's name is even just about all of Egypt and their occultic practices. But he was an officer of Pharaoh. He was, interestingly enough, the chief of the executioners. And he was the master to whom Joseph was sold as a slave. So this man was, he wasn't necessarily Pharaoh's right-hand man, but he was over Pharaoh's guard. Think of him in, a, in the way I picture is, uh, he's the captain of the secret service. That the people who protect Pharaoh, guard Pharaoh, are about his inner honor guard, he's over them. And he's also the chief executioner. So need someone killed, need someone off, just come to Potiphar and he'll, he'll set up the gallows for you. I don't know if they cut off his head. I don't know what the, how they executed them, but they did. Um, well, the book, the, the baker, the, the, it was a bit of a, a crucifixion, actually. Um, but it's interesting to see that Joseph ends up next to, in the next chapter, when we see him in prison, um, and that Joseph was never executed. Even though that this guy, as we'll see in a minute, has total power to execute him, he never executes Joseph. Um, he wasn't just a rich guy and had a jail in his house. This, this man killed people for a living. He executed justice on people's lives or judgment. Uh, but again, Joseph was bought from the Ishmaelites. And again, it's only been roughly 200 years. And these Ishmaelites people, uh, I feel like the family connection is seemingly gone. Maybe they know who they are and what they are. But uh, to Jacob and his family, they're just traitors going by that they can sell them to. But it says that the, the Lord was with Joseph. And it's interesting that the Hebrew is just Yahweh Joseph. It doesn't say, just the connotation of those two words being next to each other is that the Lord was with Joseph. I think that's interesting to say that, you know, maybe it doesn't feel like the Lord's with you, but he's right there next to you. That his name and your name are right next to each other. Can you imagine that? It's the same thing with Jesus, right? That Yahweh is salvation, that their names are intertwined. But Joseph is in this place where he's far from his family, like we said a hundred times, he's a slave. So what? He's not free to go home. He's not free to do what he wants to do. He's not free to go start a business. He's not free to hang out with his friends. He has to do what someone else wants him to do all day, every day of his life. And I'm sure as a teenager, we all maybe felt like that. Or sometimes at work, we have to do what we, want, what we have to do, nine to five, what someone else wants us to do. He doesn't speak the language. And he didn't speak Egyptian. He doesn't necessarily even look like the Egyptians around him. Maybe his complexion's a little different. Maybe his hair's a different color. Maybe he's a, di a different statue, stature. But God is with him. God is with him. When it seems like nothing else is with him, God is with him. And it says that Joseph was a successful man. And this word success is advance, prosper. Make, we're, I think we're afraid of that word in Christianity because of how it's abused. But God really wants to prosper you and I. That doesn't mean you're going to be healthy, wealthy, rich, beyond belief, but God wants to prosper your life, that it would be full, that you would make progress, that you'd be profitable uh, spiritually and even practically. But I think it's interesting that even as a slave, when most people think that this is the, the farthest thing you can do from prospering, that Joseph is prospering. Uh, he uh, himself, as a slave, is doing well as a slave. Can he do well as a slave? Well, Joseph did well as a slave. Not only that, but his master began to do well, that his house began to do better, that even the crops somehow were doing better, whether it was supernatural and God was just blessing that field with more nitrogen than the other fields, I don't know. But that, 
the practices that Joseph was instituting, God was putting favor on his life, was allowing good things to come on them. And Colossians 3, 22 through 24 says, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, like just when they're looking, as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. And Ephesians 6, 5-9 through 9 says something very similar. And even says to masters and new masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. That as believers, even if we're a slave, we're to treat our slave master like we would the Lord, even if they are cruel and mean to us. And he says, Christian, if you're a master, he doesn't say get rid of your slaves. He says, be a good master because you need to be a slave to Christ, even as a master. But it says that Joseph was in the house of Potiphar. And I never noticed this before, uh, for putting this together and studying, but he really could have ended up anywhere in Egypt. He could have ended up anywhere. He could have ended up theoretically building one of the pyramids. He could have been digging a ditch somewhere. He could have been out in the field with the animals in the hot sun all day. And where does God have him end up working? In the house of Potiphar. A nice house. I mean, we think we have air conditioning or anything, but, you know, they didn't have air conditioning then. They had fans. You know, maybe you watch, like, some crazy show. They think that they have electricity and all those things. But that it was probably a nice house. It was probably cool in there. The Egyptians were very smart, and they had different ways. And so he was out. He was wearing house garments. He wasn't out wearing, you know, car hearts. He was wearing some sort of linen and working in the house all day. And perhaps, you know, obviously they had a field and, you know, it was more of a homestead than it was just a mansion. So there was work outside. But I think in some sense, this is God's favor on his life that he's in this house. And he's not, you know, building the railroad all the live long day. And that's God's favor. I think a lot about, you know, how I work at a computer and it's, I should, I want to learn more things with my hands and work more with my hands. But at the end of the day, it's a, it's a blessing and a favor that I can make the income that I can make without having to dig a ditch. Not to say that digging a ditch is bad or worse, but it's, I have a relatively easy job. And I see that as God's favor um, in, some, in some manner there. But it says in verse 3 that his master saw that the Lord was with him. And the Lord prospered him. Just like Jacob under Laban's unfair hand, we read that God would prosper him. Jacob would give him a rough deal. and uh, I'm sorry, Laban would give him a rough deal and Jacob would take it and God would still bless it. And Laban would go, how is this happening? And then give him another rough deal and God would begin to bless that one. But we see that God blessed him and prospered him and that his master saw it. This Egyptian, this man who is about the sun god, you know, belonging to the sun god, is beginning to see the true God at work in this slave's life. And this Hebrew slave. He's not seeing it when he goes to the temple. He's not seeing it when he's around Pharaoh and all his magicians. He's seeing it in this slave that he bought 30 bucks one weekend when the slave traders came to town. I think that obviously that can say to you and I that our work is a witness, but also that our lives are a witness to those around us, and especially those over you. You may think, what kind of influence do I have? I'm just so-and-so I don't even have a college education or I, I only make this much money and they make this much money how can I be a witness to them well you can because it's God's favor on your life that speaks through all those things I remember seeing kids in youth group and it was obvious that God's hand was on them 
they weren't always necessarily the smartest or the best at anything or the best looking. Sometimes they were very much so. But you'd see them and you would just see God's hand on their life. They would want to learn an instrument and they would be able to do it. They just do really well at school. They just would just have favor with their parents just because they were serving God. Now, were they perfect? No. But I even look at them and go, you know, I think they have more of God's favor on their life than I do on mine. And, and I'm supposed to be over them, you know, over them, so to speak, quote, just to try and help them through life. It was obvious. There was almost like this air with them, this fresh air that came along with some of them. And then there was another kind of smell that came along with some of the other kids, probably just because they really like football and other things. But sincerely, it was, a, it was a blessing to see that. You could just see it. And I think that's what Potiphar was seeing here. He sees Joseph going about the house, doing the work, the way he speaks, you know, even though he doesn't speak probably very good Egyptian at this point. He sees that God is with him. It says he sees that Yahweh is with him. The Lord is with him. He doesn't just see that this man is... Is, is practically good at things, he sees that there's a supernatural favor on his life. That Potiphar, even though we don't see him coming to know God in this, maybe he does, we see that he's open to these spiritual things. He's open to, wow, and perceptive. And God is using Joseph to minister in this big house. And it says that a man's gift will make room for him before him, bring him before kings. Like I mentioned before, I've had opportunities in my life to stand before people that I would have no business standing before any other time in my life because of my physical talents and abilities that God has given me and whether I've had the chance to share the gospel or not with them I hope that they've been able to see that God has prospered me and brought me there um, you know I feel all the time a little awkward because so many people in my line of work have a degree in it I'm going to famous art schools for it and I haven't <laughs> and somehow God's favor but Joseph served this man in his house and guess what? Potiphar put him over the whole house. Again, this is foreshadowing of what Pharaoh's going to do. And it's also a repeat and a more glorious thing than what his father did. It's like his father did one thing, Potiphar's doing something even greater, and one day Pharaoh's going to do even something better. But between these steps of exaltation, there were great valleys of being brought low. You want your brothers to kill you, be sold into slavery, go to Egypt, be a slave in Egypt. Oh, Potiphar elevates you. Oh, you go to jail, as we'll see, and then you're in jail and forgotten for a time, and then you're elevated to give these guys dreams, and then they forget you, and then they bring you back up to be before Pharaoh. And that's hard to go through. We think sometimes in life that the spiritual ladder, so to speak, is straight up, one step after another, like stairs. It's not. It's through deep valleys, like David would say, even the valley of the shadow of death. I don't feel no evil. But God blesses Potiphar, the Egyptian. And it says it several times, the Egyptian, for Joseph's sake. You know, God is going to bless your employer or anyone who seems like the boss in your life. Maybe you have an overbearing parent or whatever. They're going to bless them for your sake as you follow him and uh, exhibit God's witness and, and favor to them. And in life, really hiring a Christian to do the job should be a blessing. And it shouldn't be Proverbs 10, 26. It's vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is a lazy man to those who send him. And I hate to say it, there's been times in my life when I've been hired to do a job and I've been a little lazy. And I haven't been necessarily the best witness. But hopefully, for the majority of my work, not that it outweighs it or makes it better or gets rid of it, hopefully for the majority of my work, my employer can look on and say, I'm glad that he's a Christian. I can trust him. In fact, my boss even said to me things of that nature, like, 
you know, I'm, it's, it's so easy for me to do what I have to do because I, I don't have to check in on you. I know you're going to be doing what you need to be doing. Um, and that's an honor. But this is true success. That's not that we've done well or gotten a raise or have clout or that we work in Potiphar's house. I think it's so funny when people are so psyched to be working for these big major companies. I think it's, it's great and it's good and it's success. But you're just a slave in Potiphar's house. You know what I mean? Jeff Bezos doesn't care for you, even if you're in the upper echelon of Amazon. He's got billions of dollars and you've got a couple hundred thousand. What's that to him? You're a slave to him. You know, I've heard it said, like the level of his wealth for what you and I might spend on an overpriced coffee would be the same as him buying a private jet. Like, like that's how little it is to him, to you and I. Something we could never afford. He could buy like we do a cup of coffee. But again, that's true success is not being necessarily as rich as Jeff Bezos, although he's successful, is that we would have God's favor on our life. Because Jeff Bezos can't order that in one day, one hour prime, but we can get it in a second through prayer. We can be a slave and yet, in a sense, be more prosperous than even the most wealthiest man on earth. Because God's favor is at work. And God can give us favor at work. Like I mentioned, you know, I, uh, as I follow the Lord in my life, I've seen favor happen in my life that I can't explain other than God's given me favor. There's no reason I should be able to be do this and do that if it wasn't for the Lord. But it says that in the house and in the field, that everything here in the dwelling, the people in the house, the produce of the field, the food, was all being blessed. And he left it all to Joseph's hand. That Potiphar trusted Joseph so much, he didn't even need to look over the books and reconcile QuickBooks with him. He said, Joseph, I trust you. Uh, just what's for dinner? <laughs> That's a huge level of trust. This man's rich. This man's powerful. This man's got a lot of things. This man's influential in society. Joseph could be stealing from him, but he knows, this man knows that this man is godly. He's going to do the right thing. He's not perfect, but that I can trust him. And how important it is that you and I as believers can be trusted in what we do, especially like we said before, when no one is looking. That's huge. You know, because Joseph was a good steward. It's 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court, Paul says. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts, and each one's praise will come from God. He says, God is my judge, but then I'm not going to judge anything before the time. And I think Joseph would was probably wise and didn't judge anything before the time of these things going on. He knew that God would, would come through. And 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That as being stewards of God's gifts to us, spiritual, physical, whatever, that one of the best ways to invest them is in others, and especially in other believers, by pouring out our, our abilities to serve God in church, in our job, wherever we are, that it's not for us, it's for others. It's for others. That Joseph, as a slave, didn't get a better wage. He probably wasn't paid at all. Maybe he got a little better dinner now that he was in charge of everything. Maybe he got a little better room. 
But he didn't have anything to call his own. He was still in his master's home. And everything he did was for the Lord. And it ended up blessing those around him too. And I don't know that he necessarily benefited from it, so to speak. Um, the way you and I might seek a benefit when we're getting a job. Well, what's 401k like? Do I get weekends off? What holidays do I get off? And those are all fine things that, to ask and want in a job. It's a job. Don't get me wrong. You're not a slave. You don't need to be a slave. But sincerely, as believers, we need to be more interested in making sure that others are blessed than ourselves. Let's go on. Verse 7 says, And it came to pass that after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in his house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. And again, just to touch on the end of verse 6, it says that Joseph is handsome, in form of appearance. Not like me. It says that in another translation that he was a goodly person and well favored. I sent a meme to somebody the other day about grammar and everything and this just reminds me he was a goodly person. You know, no one says goodly person anymore. But it means that his shape, his form, his outline, his figure, appearance. That Joseph, obviously, he's a young man, 17, 18, however old he is at this point. He's working hard. He's in good shape. He's got a, a, a physique that would be uh, uh, appealable to anybody, I think. But this word also means sight, appearance, and vision. Sight phenomenon, a spectacle, a vision of what is seen, supernatural. And I think that's interesting because Joseph had a supernatural gift in him. And God would give him these dreams and later give him a supernatural gift of vision, of sight, of form, of appearance. And needless to say, there's something very attractive about a godly person. And they don't even have to flaunt themselves. You know, a, a godly woman who covers herself in an appropriate manner and dresses nice is far more attractive than a woman who exposes herself. Although they may uh, incite lust in one, uh, it's not as attractive. It's not as safe. But Joseph was all of the above. And this was impossible for this woman to resist. He was young, he was attractive, and he had this favor on her life. Obviously, she didn't fear God, but she desired it. She wanted it. And again, I don't think this, she was the most faithful woman to begin with. You know, I could be wrong, but she's rich. She's a royalty woman. She's sitting around all day, got nothing to do. She's like the housewife shows, whatever they are. And here's this young man in her house, and she wants him. And this lady, I get the feeling that what she wants, she gets. That when Potiphar comes home, she's like, Potiphar, I want the new chariot with the bigger wheels. He goes, all right, honey, here's my platinum card or whatever. You know, I feel like she's this type of lady. And it's interesting. Maybe I'm reading into it. But Joseph doesn't say that he's not attracted to her. He doesn't say, get away from me. You're disgusting. I would never touch you in any day of my life. He says, lady, I, your husband, my master, has given me everything in this house except you. So why would I do this wickedness against him? Maybe he wasn't attracted to her. Or maybe she was. Maybe she's rich. Maybe she got the best plastic surgeon in all of Egypt. I don't know. But Joseph's answer is not about his feelings. It's about honor. I can't do this. I'm sorry. 
well, I'm not going to do this wickedness, lady. I'm sure it's convicted to her. She wants to do something that's wicked, and he says, hey, lady, it's wicked. I think we need more of that in this day and age. I say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I just don't agree with you. Say, no, it's wicked. I don't want anything to do with it. Well, you can't call me that. Well, it is. Like we talked uh, recently, I don't know if it was in a message or what we were talking about the other day. I was just that we've given room to wickedness in society. And as we've given room to it, that's how it's become this giant thing today. So we keep giving room to it. And Joseph doesn't give room to it, even though it's his master's wife. Even though he has to do anything she says, he's not going to obey her in this. We don't have to be obedient when it goes against God's will and his law. And his eyes are on his master, upholding what is his master's. And this is a young guy too. Young guy, Joseph's a young man. He's at that age when he's most virulent. But he won't sin against God. I think about this epidemic of female teachers coming on to young boys. Well, it's probably easier than a male teacher coming on to a young girl, to be frank. Young boys are young boys, and I'm sure if the teacher is attractive, the young boys will go, all right, 17, 16. And it's disgusting. It's wicked. And that's another sign of the times. I can't wait to get to Revelation. I don't want to rush through this, but I can't wait. Because we're near the end. But he cannot sin against God. He knows this is a big thing. Number one, adultery. Number two, betraying your master. So he knows the law of God, even though the law hasn't been written yet. He knows, Joseph knows that it's wicked to do that. And he calls it great wickedness. And he won't sin against God because he knows who his real master is. It's not Potiphar. It's God. But you know, she didn't give up. And then she's not going to give up until we'll see in a minute. It's verse 11. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work. So, you know, the next couple of days, couple of weeks, whatever it was. But none of the men of the house was inside. So can you imagine that? Normally the house is full of people doing stuff. You walk in, it's... Joseph's got like a bundle of something. I don't know. It's quiet in here. Where's everybody? All right, you know. Hello. Puts his stuff down. That she caught him, verse 12, by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and ran outside. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house, and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought in to us a Hebrew to mock us. So is she blaming her husband there? He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. So she doesn't say her husband, it says his master. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came into me to mock me. And so it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So again, he goes inside. No one's there. It's awfully quiet. I just picture the stone or marble and the cool echo that's probably in there. But there's no one in the house. But she sent all the guys out on purpose. And especially in this day and age, I think we need to be careful about being alone with anyone. Man or woman that we don't know one thing of their family it's another thing you know if we're friends with them and you know it's within reason but especially in this day and age of accusations being taken as fact you know i was at work and uh i had I think i had a rental car or whatever 
and I was asked to give a ride to a coworker for because we were both at the hotel, and so I did. And after I did it, you know, and there's nothing wrong. There's nothing like between us or anything like that. Uh, but after I did the only loss, I'm like, I really can't do that anymore. Like, I, it's not that there's anything going on or anything like that, but it's just I just don't want there to be any opportunity for accusation. Um, and he understood it, and I think she kind of understood it. Um, but First Thessalonians 5.22 says, Abstain from all appearance of evil. And different translations says form of evil, and I think appearance is a better word there. Because a lot of it, and especially in the Christian life, is really about not appearing like you're doing something wrong. And we can use this and try and use it and abuse the verse. But I don't mean to use the youth as an example, but I will, uh, just because it's easier than picking on myself. But I remember they would kind of go out and do things and go places. Or there's other kids who maybe even are nominal believers or not believers, and they'd be roommates with each other. And they go on long trips together. They're unsupervised. And it's kind of like, like, well, none of us are involved with each other. Well, maybe not, but does it look like it? And you serve at church, and does it kind of look like maybe there's an opportunity for sin there? If you're living in the same house and your neighbors see it as an unbeliever, what are they going to think? They're going to think you're doing the same thing everyone else is doing. And even if you're not, even if you're not and you're you know, willing to stumble someone else or potentially ruin your witness, you don't think there's going to be temptation? It doesn't even have to be an attractive person. You spend enough time with them a long time, your mind is going to start going that way. That's what happens. But Joseph, like I said, he probably knows something was funny when no one was around. And I think after what he said to her last time, she was trying to get him to do it when no one was looking. Maybe there are other people around. There's someone in the other room, and she thinks that Joseph just said it because there's someone else in the room or someone else in the house that might walk in on them. But that's not Joseph. So she's trying to set him up. Well, now no one's here, so now we got the whole house to ourselves. Obviously, she calls out the other servants. Someone would have known. Even if they're outside, they're still hearing what's going on in there. But Joseph knew that God was looking. So even if no one else was looking, Joseph still wasn't going to do it. Even if he could get away with it, so to speak, he wouldn't get away with it. And like I heard in a short clip last night, that our, our conscience is what keeps us from doing wrong even when we can get away with it. And we look at current society and the things that go on, especially in politics and in power. If they think they have any chance of getting away with it, they're going to do it. Even if there's a risk of getting caught, if the benefits outweigh that risk, they're going to go for it. But it says that she grabbed him by the garment. I think it's interesting. Just like his coat of many colors. Now he's got this garment on, and she grabs him by this garment, perhaps even a sign of his authority. And he ran. He wasn't going to fight her. He wasn't going to push her off and get his coat back. He wasn't going to risk hurting her or, or having her even get closer to him. He was like, okay, take my coat. And ran and got out. He didn't even say a word. And that's what we need to do for all kinds of temptation. Don't argue with the devil. I rebuke you. No, no, read James. Get out of there. But she calls the men back in. Maybe they didn't hear what happened. But she obviously didn't cry out. The men didn't come running because she screamed. She said, guards, guys, whatever she does to get them in there. And then she claims she tried to mock the Egyptians. That this was bigger than, than him just trying to violate her. This was him uh, and even her husband bringing a Hebrew in here to, to mock all of Egypt by him doing this to her. But she makes it this big, dramatic 
escapade in the public court of gossip to his fellow uh, servants that they might not even hate him too. And we have to think about society today and how accusations are just made against people. I'm not saying that they're all wrong, but what I'm saying is that I'm not even saying that society should operate the way it has been operated. But what I'm saying is that when we begin to take these dramatic accusations as fact and begin to lynch people before they've gone through due process, well, then we're in trouble. And then the innocent end up going to jail, like we see here. So when her husband comes home again, she says, you know, why have you brought him in here? You know, this kid, and he tried to do this to me, and he disrespected all Egypt, and, you know, just got this whole attitude like it's his fault when she's the wicked one, and he's the one who's, wow, God's working in his life, and he's got a wicked wife. That's why it's so important you marry the right person, right, babe? <laughs> but she's very manipulative. She's trying to manipulate the slaves, trying to manipulate her husband. But her story doesn't add up. Because if you looked at it rationally, you'd say, well, why do you have his coat? Why doesn't he have your garment? Why is his stuff in your hand and not your stuff ripped? But she was, again, manipulated. This word mock means the jest, to laugh, to play, to make a toy out of. But wasn't that not what Joseph was to her? Just some toy for her to to have for her own pleasure. And let's read the last few verses here as we come to a close. It says, verse 19, it says, So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison, whatever they did there. It was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. So we even see there that the, the, the keeper of the prison saw God's favor on Joseph's life, cause saw God's hand on his life. But we see that Potiphar's anger was aroused, and rightfully so. If... I heard someone come in and they hurt my family, that would be rightfully angry too. You know, Proverbs 6, 34, 35 says, For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in his day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. Some guy does something with my wife, even though if, even if my wife was being wicked, I would still, what did you do? <laughs> but Potiphar believes his wife, but I, I don't think maybe completely. I think maybe he's seen Joseph's life and maybe he thinks Joseph slipped up. Maybe he thinks Joseph had a moment of weakness. He knows how his wife is. So, you know, he kind of sees it as maybe that's the way it is. Um, because he didn't kill Joseph. This man has the power to execute Joseph. He throws him in prison. He's angry, but he doesn't kill him. And he could, you know, it's something that he could have done. Again, I think this is all part of God's favor on Joseph's life. He was the chief executioner. Joseph was a slave. Joseph almost did something apparently to his wife. Joseph was just property. And he goes to jail. So see later, two other guys go to jail so they figure out what happens. And then the one is executed. But Joseph never gets a death sentence put on his life. And it's interesting that he's put in a special prison for those whom Pharaoh is locked up. Again, I think this is favor that he doesn't just go to Gen Pop 
he goes to some supermax for white collar criminals, potentially. There's probably other bad guys in there. But these are this, this special prison, like a federal prison. It's not your average guys. And I think about this high profile wicked man who was recently, quote unquote, hanged under suicide watch. He wasn't hanged. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. I love that verse. That he's with him. And even though the whole world is against him, the whole world is putting judgment on him, God shows him mercy. And what's mercy? Not giving someone what they deserve, not giving them the judgment they deserve. He's giving him mercy, even in the midst of this worldly judgment. And know that the world judges you and I for the way we are as believers, for how we serve God. Know that we're going to find God's mercy underneath all that. The world's going to want to rain down judgment on us, but God's going to give us this umbrella of mercy uh, over us. Because God is the one, remember, who ultimately sees everything. Potiphar didn't see everything. He just had what his wife said to him. And he knew what Joseph's life was normally like. But God would exonerate Joseph, but it would take another 13 years or so. 13 years for false accusation. But you know, again, this was God's path to Pharaoh. Joseph wasn't just going to walk into Pharaoh's house one day. Potiphar, I don't think, you know, I'm guessing here, but it doesn't seem like he was Pharaoh's right-hand man. He was just the chief of the guard. doesn't mean that he was at Pharaoh's bedside all the time, that Pharaoh told him his dreams. Potiphar seems like a type of meathead, shaved head, military type guy. Nothing wrong with that, but I don't think he's a man of dreams and of visions and spirituality necessarily. But this is God's way for Joseph to get to Pharaoh, was to be falsely accused and put in prison for 13 years. God, what is this about? It's a bigger picture, again, of Jesus, that Joseph had no idea that his life would be a picture of the Messiah's life. And isn't that our lives, too, that we're supposed to be a picture of Jesus? And that's not going to come easily. That's going to come through a lot of practice and painting and skill and time and the right canvas. But Joseph now, as we saw, has favor under the prison keeper because of God. He had favor at home, he has favor under Potiphar, and now he has favor even on, under the, the chief of the jail. And again, this isn't necessarily probably like the jail that we're used to. It's probably a little bit different. You know, I, even, I don't think it's necessarily like this, but there's some prisons in South America where they don't even have the guards inside. The guards just keep everybody in, but then they run their own society on the inside. I don't know that it's that free. I think that there's probably cells and a little more intrusion of the guards here. But Joseph starts running the place. That there's this fruit in his life that keeps on coming out. That God's favor keeps on being poured out in Joseph's life. Whether he's at home with his family, a slave in a foreign country, or even a prisoner in this high security prison. And the keeper of the prison says that in verse 23, he didn't look into anything under Joseph's authority. That he sees God, God's favor on Joseph's life, even in the way he behaves in prison and goes about getting his three square meals a day and takes care of his cot or whatever he has in there. I don't even think it was probably that nice. And he gives everything into his hand. In prison. My brother-in-law is a prison guard. I don't think that he would give anything into any of the prisoners' hands to run without looking into it. Yeah, they have like time where they work and time where they can kind of oversee things and put their hands to things and get educated and have different classes and all that. I think that's good. But they still do random cell checks. 
They still frisk them. They still look them down. They still don't trust them completely because these guys are prisoners. They're not trustworthy. That's why they got into prison in the first place. And yet Joseph has the same favor as he did in the house in prison where he runs the show. The guard doesn't even like check him for anything. Because the guard saw that it was the Lord was with him and the Lord made it prosper. He saw that whatever Joseph was doing was some sort of magic because there's no way that you can get five when two plus two equals four. And Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Because when you and I are with the Lord, and the Lord is with us, and we set out to do something, God is going to make it prosper. I liken it to like the Midas touch, where he asked for this gift, where everything he touched turned to gold, but it turned out to be a curse. But when God has a blessing, there's no sorrow with it. That we may not be physical gold, like the people on TV would have you believe, or, but it's going to be spiritual riches. There's going to be spiritual food, or even practical food, to feed those around you that see God's favor in their life. They're going to go, ooh, I never read the Bible, but somehow I'm eating of God's goodness when I see his favor upon your life. That as you step out and do things that no one else would do, or you're involved in things and behave the way that no one else behaves in those situations, I can get a taste of God there. In Acts 4.13, I know we're going a little long today, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. They saw these disciples doing these amazing things, saying these amazing things, and they realized, this guy doesn't even have good grammar. <laughs> this guy can barely tie his sandals. He's with Jesus. He's been with Jesus. God doesn't need our natural abilities. He'll use them, but he doesn't need them. As you and I simply serve him, we will magnify, he will magnify himself through us to the point that people will be amazed. Because if it was just our gifts, just our talents, we we're just prosperous on our own, who would get the glory? You and I. But when we allow God to do the work in us, he will get the glory. Because it will be obvious that it's him. Obvious that there's no way I could have done some things in my life, a lot of things in my life. There's no way even I could hold down a job without the Lord. So that's why we need to worry about, we need to let God worry about, excuse me, lifting us up. Joseph was in prison. He wasn't there fighting for his defense attorney. He wasn't proclaiming his own goodness. He said, all right, this is where I'm at. There's probably no way out. Let me just serve God in it. And let God worry about vindicating you and I. Not that Christians shouldn't have a lawyer or go to court or countersue if necessary. But man, we need to let God be the one to speak on our behalves. Why? Because when God does, people will be amazed and he will be glorified. We need to remember the word, the dreams, the vision he has given us, the promises that he has spoken to us, like Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you 
to be carried away captive. And Lord, uh, is in life, God, there's times when we just feel your blessing and it seems like, oh, we've got so much freedom and do whatever we want and everything's going right. And then there's other seasons, God, when it seems like nothing's going right. We don't have any choice. And it seems like it's never going to be over. But God, you promise as we seek you and search for you, God, that, Lord, you'll be found. And that, Lord, you do it all for a purpose, whether we understand it or not. It's, it's always for a good reason. It's always to bless us. In the end, we know that we'll always be blessed for these things that may not look like blessing right now. So, God, help us to hang on to what you've spoken to us, to your word, your son, and by your spirit to get through. We love you. God bless your people and anyone who's listening. In Jesus' name, amen.